wouldn't take great effort not to play around with God's word to, you know, um, pick scriptures here and there and try to, you know, tie a message together out of them, but, uh, but to kind of really just seek the truth as revealed in his word. So, um, if you would all stand with me, uh, I don't know if we've got the, uh, yes, okay, got that up there, Numbers 14, uh, 26 through 33. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me, saying unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Doubtless you shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell there, and save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, which he said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years, and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you might guide my words tonight. Let this not be vanity, but truth. Please, Lord, help ensure that you get all the glory tonight and that your word go forth and that it might be received. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Numbers 14, uh, we read about this situation of Israel in the wilderness. Uh, when the spies went into the promised land and saw what was there, and saw the, the inhabitants, the giants therein, and uh, the people of Israel feared. And uh, they decided that they wanted to go back to Egypt. In Numbers 14... Uh, 1 through 10, I'll read it here. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain, and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an, exceedingly, it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. For they are bred for us, their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. So, God's work with his people. Uh, he had brought them out of bondage in Egypt uh, to this promised land. He brought them out of bondage to this place of, of peace and rest and safety that, uh, that he had promised them. And he had shown them the way there. 
not only did he, did he show them the way there, he showed them the way in and showed them the means by which they were to possess it. But this way seemed impossible to most of them uh, because the manner that this had to happen was uh, only possible by faith. And some, as we read, uh, trusted the Lord fully, but unfortunately something very troubling happened. And uh, as we read earlier, the majority of them turned away. They, uh, they wanted to go back into Egypt, the very land that God had brought them out of. And so we read about God's terrifying response, about how he said he would drop their carcasses in the wilderness. And so what, what can we take away from this tonight? You know, what, how, how does this apply to our lives? And how, what, does this, what does this mean to us? Well, for one thing, the people that rebelled against the Lord had decided that the way was too hard for them. You know, they, they had heard about these, these giants that lived in the land. They heard about the, how they were outnumbered and that uh, they feared for the safety of their children. And they didn't trust God. They didn't trust him with their own lives. They didn't trust him with their, with their children's lives. And, you know, really their actions indicate that they didn't even know him because really to know God is to trust him. And really they were only concerned with their own comfort their own safety, and, uh, well, their own idea of safety, I should say. And really, if you think about it, the word submission, in terms of submission to God, really wasn't in their vocabulary. And so the lesson that we take away from this, one of the many lessons we take away from this, is that none of them, save for just a few, survived the wilderness. We read that uh, Caleb and Joshua, and the little ones did, but, uh, but those whose hearts remained hardened and... Uh, those who did not submit to the Lord were wasted in the wilderness. And there's some pretty, you know, harsh words here. And so, uh, obviously, it's a pretty strong message that, uh, that we need to take to heart. But why, did only, why is it that only a few of them made it? Uh, we know that they had to, that, that God, because of all this, they, they were made to wander in the wilderness and uh, that most of them died out. But God said that by their actions... They showed that they actually despised the land that he had prepared for them. They didn't, they didn't trust him. Uh, their hearts were hardened, and they would not trust him or, or follow uh, God's leadership. Um, and it is critical to understand this principle, because if you think about it, really, our lives depend on it. Now, this, this principle, even this story, actually, is found all throughout the Bible. Uh, this story um, occurs or is, is referenced uh, at least uh, three times throughout the Word in, in both the Old Testament and the New. Uh, this is such an important thing to understand for us that the Apostle Paul um, even quotes uh, the 95th Psalm, which is another place where this story is referenced, uh, when he addresses the Hebrews uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And we read, uh, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear his voice, Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So we've, so we've heard about the wrong way, uh, in terms of, the fact that departing from fully trusting in God leads to destruction and wrath. But what is the way? What, what exactly is the, the right way? You know, uh, we, we read that few of the people 
survived. And obviously they chose the right way, or they were motivated, they were preserved by the Lord to take the right way. But what is, what is this way? And this, this way is really what the Bible is all about. We find it all throughout the Word. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of the narrow way, as you may remember in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And every time I read this, that the word few pops out at me, and uh, it makes me remember other places in, in the word where we hear about few surviving, and this other story. All the way back in Numbers, we read about how few survived. Now we know that saving faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to escape God's wrath and judgment. We know that. He is that straight gate. And God's revealed will is the way. So in a sense, you could kind of think of it as the Bible being almost like our roadmap to God's rest, the promised land. His promises. Now, there's only one way. There's only one road, so to speak. There's only one version of the truth. There aren't multiple versions of the truth, no matter, you know, what any philosophy major might tell you. Um, but really, there's only one version of the truth. And that, and that truth, that, that road, that path, is a very narrow, sometimes very difficult road with, and with soul-wrenching challenges on it. Uh, walking in this road really means being led by God and being taught to, uh, in, in many ways, being taught to unlearn much of what our culture has fed us. We've grown up in a society where we're taught that really this concept of sin doesn't even exist. You can really do whatever you want. Uh, and that, uh, you know, God exists to serve you. And that, that's really kind of what our culture promotes uh, it's a satanic message, really, when you get down to the, to the bottom of it. But walking that narrow way, it really means being taught how to live as part of a culture, as defined in the Bible, a culture separated unto itself from the rest of the world, and being taught by the Holy Spirit between the, the difference between this kind of modern, uh, man-centered, uh, cultural Christianity and the true historical Christianity that we read about in God's Word. Because there is a difference. It means not leaning into our own understanding. The only way to travel down this road is to be totally reliant upon Christ alone and to not trust in ourselves because we're nothing. We're nothing. We have to trust in His power to lead and guide us because that's all we have. Now, many of us know that God always provides. God always takes care of his children. And many of us know this. Sometimes even we're struck by when we sit down to eat a meal or something, sometimes the Lord will just speak to us and we realize even the food that we eat comes from him. The house that we live in, the fact that we have safety and peace shelter and love and healthy families, all these things come from him. 
so God provides. God has provided everything that we need, and, and, and even in abundance. And more importantly, God has provided a Savior. He provides repentance and victory over sin, and, and he even provides the, the very faith that he uses to, uh, to put all this together. So we can praise the Lord that God provides. God always provides. He has provided everything we need to know about his will for our lives in this book. He's provided the Holy Spirit to enable us to fully trust in him. And not just to know his will, but to do his will. I mean, if Christ died so that we might travel that road to life, as, as we read about in God's word, if, if he died that we might be able to travel that road, to walk down that road in faith, to life and eternity in the presence of a, of a holy God, I mean, what other, way, what other way is there for the believer once that's been made possible? Now, when someone has truly been born again, truly regenerated in, in a true biblical sense, just as, a, just as a baby grows, there's, there is a certain growing in obedience in that person's life and in that person's heart. There's a certain growing in holiness. And there's, there's a, a process, not an instantaneous process, but a process of being transformed and, and conformed by God to the image of his precious son. We know this is not something that we do ourselves. This isn't something that, that comes from us. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not something we have the ability to accomplish for ourselves by you know, repeating, just simply repeating a prayer or just simply walking down an aisle or, or doing some sort of external thing like that. Uh, there's, there's a lot of that today. Um, I, just the other day, I, w- I was driving down the road and I, I was listening to a, a local Christian station, and uh, there was a there was a pastor on there giving a, a message. sounded, you know, for the most part, relatively sound. And then at the end, there was there was a, a standard invitation, and uh, just ended it with just this this kind of almost monologue thing that he that he just rattled off, and he said, "And you know, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, just pray this prayer and." Uh, just ask the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart. Tell him you're a sinner, and uh, you'll be saved. And if you just pray that prayer with me, uh, you can rest assured that you're born again, and you're on your way to heaven, and God has, has made you a new creature. And if we, have, if we reduce this, the idea of salvation down to just simply repeating something that, that somebody on the radio said, and it's not something that God does in your heart, in the, in the innermost depths of your being, we're, we're clearly deceived if we think that that's what salvation is all about, because it's not. Salvation is a supernatural, sovereign act of God. And those who are truly saved have experienced this in one way or another. And it always involves brokenness and fear before a holy God. Because we, we are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And when I say, you know, when the Bible says work out your salvation... It doesn't mean, you know, do something to uh, ensure it or, uh, or anything like that. But it says to, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord and understand, you know, seek the Lord, submit to him with fear and trembling. And when salvation is genuine, it, it always produces, always produces lasting, permanent faith in Jesus Christ. And that person, 
will, will have a genuine desire to know God's word and to begin to grow in faith and obedience over time. Because that person is being led by the Holy Spirit into all truth. That's what the Bible tells us. And with that person, even hard scriptures, when you're studying the word, even, even the hard scriptures, the ones that we sort of sometimes try to dance around a little bit, even, even the hard scriptures will be received with praise and humbleness of heart in that person. When that person comes across something that is just, man, you know, you guys know the, the verses I'm talking about. There are, there are certainly things in God's word that, uh, that certainly seem harsh to the natural mind, but uh, to the saved person... He says, yes, Lord, so be it. Thy will be done and not mine. Because that person has been shown where his own will would ultimately lead him, and he's felt the fiery heat of God's anger. Proverbs fourteen twelve tells us that there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And that is so true. So we can praise God for saving us from ourselves. But if someone is not truly in Christ, if someone is not genuinely born again, he can do nothing but simply continue on in his own way and not even realize his fearful condition. And that person, most of the time, is, is in this cycle of continually satisfying his own desires. The person has no real obedience or humility before the Lord in his life, no, no deep concern or, or true conviction or, or brokenness the brokenness I talked about before, no, none of that. No brokenness over sin, let alone any, any kind of victory over it. And a lost person may potentially may even be maintaining somewhat of a, of a facade of what uh, our, our cultural pop Christianity says is a, a Christian lifestyle, um, but still be living a very carnal life. Uh, you know, lots of, uh, you see a lot of kids, or, or even young adults, even Old adults, I don't know, uh, wearing Christian T-shirts, uh, going to, to Christian rock concerts, all this stuff, and, and uh, but they're living exactly like the world. There's no difference. There's no separation. There's there's no change in their lives. Those pe- those people, unfortunately, are doing just that. They're maintaining a facade of what this pop Christianity is has defined as being the acceptable way to live. And again. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man. So we just, uh, it's, if, if it's not biblical, it's not genuine in terms of salvation. Some people, lost people maybe sometimes are even good moral people just trying to do their best to live the way even they, they might think a Christian ought to. But just like the Israelites' decision to turn back seemed right to them, you know, our idea of what seems right to us on our own, is wrong. Only God's word is the truth. Because if you continue on your way, your way will kill you, but God's way, God's way will save you. And that means salvation through faith in Christ. Christ alone. And it involves true biblical repentance and continued faith and obedience, a, a victory over sin, being freed from the bondage of sin, being brought out of Egypt, so to speak. But, and once someone is saved, they really begin to become truly aware that God is infinitely beyond our comprehension in virtually every way. It's almost like, I've used this analogy with people before, I think Brian might remember this. We, you know, we talk about how God is holy and infinite and we are incapable of, of grasping him because our, our minds are, are carnal. And we've, 
It's almost like trying to explain how the stock market works and all the inner workings of the stock stock market, trying to explain that to a cockroach, you know, or an ant. You know, a, a tiny insect is is incapable of understanding these things because these something like the stock market can't fit in the head of something that small and that gross. And the thing is, but but that's not even a worthy comparison because God is so much bigger. God is God is so much more infinite, and we are so much worse in many ways, than, worse off than, than the comparison that I just gave. Because really, we are puny, insignificant, finite beings. And, and we, we think that sometimes we can get this idea of God to fit into our heads. And it's just not possible. Because he is Lord, he is creator of, of the entire universe. So the Bible says he is holy, holy, holy. When, when when a word is repeated three times, it's done for emphasis. It's done to really sink in to, to us that, that, you know, this is, God is not just holy. God is thrice holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Far, he is infinitely more holy than we are. And he is perfectly righteous and just. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, God is saying, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword, and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies, and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Revelation, we read, he is the Alpha and the Omega. By, by him, all things were created. There is none higher. And this God of all creation gave us his word so that we may know him. And not just to know him, but, but to know his will, his commands, uh, to know what he loves and what he hates. And so many of us ignore it. I mean, how often do you really read God's word? If what I just said is true, don't you think that a book this vital, this important, should be read every day? And yet, how often do some of us open it up and treat it like it's just another book? Why do so many of us seem to have this idea that we can ignore most of it and then kind of pick and choose what we take at face value, interpreting what we like one way and what we don't like in another? See, it's not just a, a book. I mean, you can, you can, study, you can study Shakespeare... And you can interpret his writings any way you want with very few eternal consequences. Uh, You can read uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, and and you can take away whatever you want from those books, and it makes little difference in terms of the welfare of your soul. But these are just books written by men. This book is written by God. It is living. It is the way. And on that day of judgment, you will stand not before William Shakespeare or Mark Twain, but before the divine author of this book and you'll be judged by it. So why do we dare treat it as if it's little more than a novel, unworthy of our time or our attention or our submission, most importantly? The Bible says that the Word was made flesh. So this is the way. This is the truth. And this is the life. And too often, we, we you know, attempts are made to, to kind of bend the Word of God to, 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 to meet our own current cultural template. And when a passage in Scripture turns up that it doesn't really fit into our, our template, so to speak, 
usually the most socially acceptable interpretation is the one that we favor and regard as true. Uh, we want to make God's word conform to us instead of the other way around. And I'll have to admit, I've been guilty of that. And I say, and I say so not proudly but fearfully because at the time I was demonstrating that I did not trust God fully at his word. But I praise him for turning my wicked heart. See, the lost man sees only the giants in the land and refuses to trust God fully. But praise God, the true believer can see the same thing but walks by faith and says, yes, Lord, so be it. I will trust you. I will let you lead me. I will trust you fully and implicitly and completely. Because that person, that the believer, now knows that God is sovereign and holy above all things and that all things are possible with him. Nothing is beyond the capabilities of, of our God. After all, uh, he, he is accountable to none other, and he has the absolute right to rule over all of his creation. So God is infinitely powerful, and God is perfectly holy, and we are the exact opposite. How can we dare to think that, that our finite carnal minds can comprehend a, a perfectly holy, infinite God? Who can comprehend God? The important thing to remember is that this God of the Bible will not fit in your head, as I just described a few minutes ago. But here's the dangerous part. A God that you create in your mind can fit in your head. This is a very dangerous thing. Because if the God you worship is one that doesn't hate and punish sin and lets you do anything that your heart desires without chastising or correcting you, you need to think about this carefully. If your God changes and adapts to who you are, and instead of leading you into righteousness, he ultimately submits himself to you, you should be afraid, because that is not Jehovah God as described in Scripture. That is an idol in your mind. We know what God says about idolaters. See, you do not come to the God of the Bible on your terms, but on his. So do you bend your knee and fully submit your will to the God of Scripture, or does your God bend his knee to your will? Are you being conformed to the will of the God who created you? Or is your will conforming the God you've created? So we're talking about submission. That's really kind of the central theme here. And the God of the Bible requires total submission from those that would seek his safety and his rest. And being totally sovereign, he is the one that works that submission in the hearts of those who he has purposed to save. I'm not saying that, you know, the, the moment a person is saved, then they begin living a perfectly righteous life. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But there is growth. There is cleansing. There's a certain leading into truth by God, the author and finisher of our salvation. There's a certain progression down that narrow road, even if it is slow at first with some stumbling. And just as when one is born physically, after one's birth, a baby must grow into a child and then into an adult. But praise God, there's no end to the level of growth one can experience with him spiritually. I read today that uh, uh, the story about how the average lifespan of the American has been officially increased to 78. I don't know if any of you guys saw that in the news. But we can praise God that spiritually our lives don't end at a, at a certain date. We can, if we are his, we can continue growing closer to him forever. But this submission that I'm talking about it, it, it always brings about a walking in the narrow way, that road that I spoke of earlier. And we may understand that the road is narrow and, and leads to life, and that the gate is Christ, and that road is God's word. 
But if, if you're not even traveling on it, how can you be assured that you're going to reach where it leads? Are you really on the road that leads to life, or are you having fun, you know, kind of off-roading out in the wilderness of this world? If the Lord has brought you onto the road, are you studying the map daily to make sure that you aren't taking any wrong turns? Or are you even on the map at all? If not, don't harden your heart and, and turn away now, because it's all right here. You know, just about everyone in America owns a Bible, and, and we are all, therefore, without excuse because God has revealed himself to us in his holy word. And so we'd be well served to dust it off once in a while and actually read it and submit to it. The Bible reveals Jesus Christ as being the one way, the one truth, and the one life. And, you know, really everybody wants to reach the promised land. I mean, that's in large part why people go to church today. Nobody really wants to go to hell. The thing is, though, you'll never see the promised land unless you're broken and brought into submission before the God of the Bible. In Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 28, the Lord says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Has he done this to your heart? Has he taken out the heart of stone and given you a new one, a heart of flesh that, that seeks after him? Or are you by your actions showing God that you despise the land that he has provided by refusing to seek it by complete submissive faith and obedience to his word, following his son? Or will your carcass drop in the wilderness because you're unwilling to trust him completely? If what I've said tonight is, is troubling, that's not necessarily my intention to, to anger anybody or anything like that, but uh, I, I would say that if anything that I've said is is troubling, I would strongly recommend you seek the Lord. Because until you, unless you just fall on your face and you give yourself completely to him, you can't walk that road. Like I said, there are a lot of uh, these kind of, you know, repeat this prayer types of things going on out there. And a lot of people do that and they are convinced of their own salvation and it's not always genuine. It's not always biblical. And so I would encourage you to truly seek the truth in God's word. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And if God has not given you a new heart, I pray that you would ask him to do that. Seek the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for this opportunity to to preach here tonight. Lord, I pray that uh, that you might be glorified uh, from this, that you might speak to people's hearts, that you might uh, make your glory known. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.